How does a weary world rejoice? For the season of Advent, we've pondered this question, and we've posed various answers. We acknowledge our weariness, we build connections, we sing songs of hope, we make room, and today, the answer suggested for us is, we root ourselves in ritual. And that makes sense for this time of year. The period leading up to and surrounding Christmas is probably the most ritual-filled time of the year for many of us. There are family rituals, get-togethers, traditional things we bake or cook or eat, ways we celebrate. There are certainly the rituals of our wider culture, public tree lightings and Santa visitations, hoopla of consumerism and shopping, the movies that we watch for the umpteenth time, songs we hear everywhere. And there are rituals connected with our faith practice, Advent candles, special services, certain readings and prayers. This is a time of year for rituals. Today's scripture text takes us close to religious rituals that strengthen life in first century Palestine for ordinary Jewish families. And to all extents and purposes, for those who met them, Joseph and Mary, with their new son, look like an ordinary Jewish family. And so they engage in the rituals that surround the birth of a firstborn son. The first of these, of course, is circumcision. Early in the account of God's interaction with God's people, when God first makes a covenant with Abraham and calls him to father a nation that will bless all the peoples of the earth, the sign of God's covenant is circumcision. And so eight days after his birth, Jesus is circumcised. And this is also a naming ceremony. So it's here that he officially receives the name Yehoshua, God saves, what we know as Jesus. But there are other rituals as well. And actually, our timing here is wrong, since the next one is meant to take place a month after the birth. In fact, traditionally, this scripture is the reading for the Feast of Candlemas at the beginning of February, also known as the Feast for the pre Presentation of the Child or the Feast for the Purification of the Virgin. Leviticus 12 explains that after a woman gives birth to a male child, she is to remain secluded for 33 days. This can be read, of course, as a sort of misogynistic devaluing of woman, she's considered unclean, but maybe it also gives the new mother time to rest quietly away from the demands of ordinary life until she's recovered from the birth. As I recall, I would have welcomed 33 days of rest. <laughs> In any case, 33 days following the birth, the mother is to bring an offering of purification. And there's another ritual happening here as well. The law also notes that the firstborn male is in a special category. 
And this is described with reference to the foundation story of the Passover. As the instructions in Exodus 13 say, when the Lord has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you, you and your ancestors, and has given it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first that opened the womb, all the firstborn of your livestock that are males shall be the Lord's. That's true for animals. They get sacrificed. But it's also true for children. Every firstborn male among your children you shall redeem. When in the future your child asks you, what does this mean? You shall answer, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from human firstborn to the firstborn of the animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord every male that first opens the womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And it goes on to say, it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as an emblem on your forehead that by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So, how do you redeem a firstborn son? Well, the law stipulates that redeeming the firstborn son requires the offering of a lamb. Though, if the family is poor, they're allowed to substitute a pair of pigeons. And so, Mary and Joseph bring the baby to the temple in Jerusalem a month after his birth, taking with them the offering of a pair of pigeons. As pious and upright Jews, they do what's asked of them, to consecrate and observe the birth of this firstborn son. Nothing out of the ordinary here, just a poor family performing the rituals that are expected. But what's not expected is the greetings and attention they find there, because this visit for expected rituals is the occasion for encounters with two elders who will offer special words about this baby. I like this story for the juxtaposition between the new and the old, between the very young, the baby at the beginning of his earthly life, new and fresh and innocent, and the elders who carry their years of reflection and devotion and who speak from their faith. I am closer to the end than the beginning of my life. And a number of years ago, when I was still employed, I was part of a training seminar in which the participants were asked to divide ourselves into age cohorts. And given that it wasn't that many years ago, I ended up in the oldest cohort. The task we were given was to talk about the mission or role for our cohort in the context of the wider mission of the organization. And what we came up with, the senior group, was that our role at this stage in life was to offer blessing. In other words, 
Unlike the younger groups, we were no longer the ones to start new initiatives or to strike out in unexpected directions. We had those chances earlier. But as the more experienced ones, the people who could have sighed, we did all that before, we tried that, it didn't work out, been there, done that. No, our role instead was to share from our experience in a way that offered encouragement, to offer blessing. And I often think of that when I'm tempted to critique something new coming along. Judy, remember, your role is to offer a blessing. And so here comes Simeon, a man nearing death, but with the message that before that happens, he will see the Lord's Messiah. Imagine the kind of anticipation he must have lived with. Every day, as he haunted the precepts of the temple, imagine how he must have looked at everyone coming in, wondering if this was the one. Our artist shows Simeon with his eyes wide open, straining to see. And here comes Anna. Anna who has lived as a widow most of her life in a context in which widows were pretty much the bottom of society. A widow, if she had no sons, was without support or property, a charity case. Anna may be part of a group of such widows who hang out in the temple and spend their time in prayer and maybe hope as well for the occasional handout from those who come to worship there. She's described as a prophet, and she's ready to tell anyone who's willing to listen what this child will mean. Simeon and Anna, elders who have been shaped by the rituals of their community's worship in the sacred location of the temple, elders who from lives of prayer and worship have become attuned to the leading of God's spirit. Elders who are ready to encounter the new baby who is the hope of their people. In their weary world, under the occupation of empire, living with uncertainty, poverty, a lack of security, Simeon and Anna's roots in worship and ritual open them to new words from God. So what are rituals? How in a weary world can being rooted in rituals help us find joy? Donna described rituals earlier, and I'll say again, they are practices that are repeated, that are done in a prescribed and stylized way, that are often communal. We can have personal rituals, of course. I have a certain way I make and drink my tea every afternoon, and that's a kind of ritual that gives shape to my life. But most of the time, when we think of rituals, we're thinking of things we do in a group or as the member of a group that help to establish and reinforce the identity of that group. 
For the Jewish people in the time of Jesus' birth, the sacrifices and offerings at the temple were central rituals. We've already noted that the ritual of circumcision connected Jesus as a baby with the covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. And the ritual of an offering to redeem the firstborn son connected him with God's saving act of the Passover and the Exodus. So these rituals marked his identity in a central way. We don't know exactly how Simeon and Anna worshipped in the temple, but we're, in told, we're told they were there engaging in daily prayers. And so those ritual acts also shaped them into the people they became. And our rituals shape us. Our repeated and patterned actions that cement our community and our identity. We gather together at least once a week, generally at the same time and place. We do certain things together at those times. We sing, we read from our scriptures, we say certain prayers together, some different each time, but some also repeated, like the Lord's Prayer. And there are other rituals that shape us with less frequency, but still great meaning for who we are. Our baptism, the Lord's Supper, washing feet. What rituals, repeated practices, can do for us is create an anchor, a platform that doesn't change, that can hold us fast, especially when things seem chaotic and the world is making us weary. It's one of those perennial discussions regarding worship. Is it more meaningful to pray spontaneous prayers or to follow a set, repeated liturgy. It's not something we'll ever settle, and it's not something I want to spend time on here, except to say that I think, as humans, we're built needing patterns and predictability. I find it interesting that church traditions like ours, that have pretty much set aside the old liturgy of the church's history in favor of a freer, and perhaps more informal style of worship, still settle in pretty quickly into patterns. Call to worship, two songs, scripture reading, you get the idea. So whether we intend to or not, we establish rituals, patterns, that give predictable shape to our lives and that provide roots for us when we encounter struggle, or fear, or change. This doesn't mean that the rituals we engage in are always intensely meaningful in the specific instance. One of the things about habits is that they can shape us even when we don't feel terribly connected emotionally to them. Maybe this week I'm distracted not really much in the mood for coming to church, but repeatedly doing it anyway will have the effect of making me a person who is more open to God's spirit, who inhabits the world just a bit differently. It's like the exercises you do when you learn to play piano. Those scales are not very much fun, but over time and with repetition, they make moving up and down the keys more automatic and make your fingers able to play without conscious thought. 
And it's also true that our rituals can carry us when we can't carry ourselves. We've all had those times when something happened that was so unexpected or painful that rocked our world. And in those times, our habits can sustain us. Our rituals can hold and carry us. I remember quite a long time ago, when I was a new Christian, reading something by Jim Wallace that has stayed with me. He said, worship is a political act. And I remember finding that confusing. What did that mean? Worship wasn't something that changed laws or brought justice or stopped the war. It wasn't marching or voting or calling on lawmakers, the things I thought of as political acts. But what Wallace was saying, and what it has taken me some time to understand, is that our worship, the repeated practices, the rituals we do together as a community following Jesus, shape us. These practices signal that we have an allegiance that is counter to the structures of power in the world. And they form us into people who will live differently as a result. Today is the Sunday after Christmas. It's actually halfway in the feast of Christmas, the 12 days of celebration between Christmas Day and Epiphany. But it also happens to be the day as Donna reminded us, when we turn the calendar to a new year. In fact, here's a fun fact. If you write down today's date in numbers, 12, 31, 23, what you have written is 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. And it's the only time this century that you can do that. So today, we mark the turning of the year. And it's worth pondering, maybe in the midst of or in spite of the hoopla of New Year's Eve, what the rituals are that will sustain us in the coming year. How will we practice our faith, express our identity? And how will those rituals open us to joy? Our popular culture gives us the impression that a new year means a chance to start over. You know the image, the old man, 2023, is leaving the scene. Here comes the new baby, representing the new year. It's time to start afresh. But we know that's really not the way it works. The things that make our world weary today, the wars, the political slapdowns, the prejudices and injustices, the warming of the planet, the numbers of unhoused neighbors sleeping in Bins Park, those will all still be there tomorrow. We don't get a hard reset. And Simeon knew all that. His words to Mary include some pretty difficult things. This baby is an occasion for the rising and falling of many in Israel, a sign that will be opposed a sword that will pierce her soul. 
But what Simeon and Anna are reminding us is that it's not the changing of the calendar that signals a new beginning. Instead, it's the birth of this child, the one in whom God enters our world and becomes one with us. In the midst of a weary world that will go on being weary, this child is a sign of joy. Joy. It's not the same thing as happiness. It doesn't mean there won't be pain and difficulty. But as African-American theologian Willie James Jennings reminds us, joy is a fundamental act of resistance against death and despair. And so in this season of Christmas, on this last day of the old year, we seek rituals that strengthen us to live resisting death and despair. In the midst of our weary world, we affirm the life that Jesus represents and brings to the whole world, God's love for all of God's creation. As Simeon sings, my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared in the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people, Israel. Amen.